I also wanted to remind you, on August 23rd, I think Pastor Jeff talked about the uh, annual members meeting that's coming up. Our annual members meeting is a chance for us to come together as members, and uh, it'll be right after the service. I'm so excited that as we've thought about what God has done in our midst and how He's working to, to reflect on that, but also then together to talk about the future. And one of the aspects that uh, our elders were just visiting about yesterday and, and taking and, and strategizing, planning about is, is we've made it no secret that as a church we're per- trying to pursue a piece of ground uh, that we could purchase together and, and build a, uh, some sort of facility on together. And uh, as with it, anything in real estate, if you understand it, it's uh, wait, 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 hurry up. And, uh, and so I want to let you know right now what we're praying about is that there is a piece of property that, uh, that has been uh, foreclosed upon and just a piece of empty ground. And uh, there is a partner who really loves Waukee Community Church, and uh, he is looking at buying that piece of property and selling a portion to us at, at a very discounted rate. Um, and uh, so anytime this happens, it's like, Wait, 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 hurry up. And we're in the wait, wait, wait phase to see if God uh, does the right things with the, with the FDIC that needs to happen and whether this partner really pans out and does this. And then uh, at, at which point we'll be able to come to you guys and say, okay, here's what it would take for us as a congregation to do that. And so to, just to be completely frank and honest with you, we're in this wait, 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 wait phase. But as we wait for this, I would just encourage you to pray about this. Just put it in your Bible as a, as a prayer item. God, would you move the mountains it would take for, uh, for us to have a, a more permanent facility that would be a home for us and it would be an equipping base for us to reach our community for Christ. And, uh, and so we just continue to give as much information as we can about that. And uh, if you have more questions, you can certainly talk to, to me or any one of our elders. Uh, we would love to, to visit with you more about that. Well, as we look at uh, the continuing our series, uh, No, which is really about saying yes to God and learning to do that from people who said no. And, and as we're doing that, today we come a- across a guy by the name of Gideon. And, and as we look at Gideon, we're going to learn that God sees us differently than we see ourselves. Uh, it occurred to me this week as I was thinking about it, sometimes that we as people see ourselves differently than other people see us, don't we? Uh, and we find out later on, really? You view me that way? For instance, uh, up until about three years ago, uh, I, I, and I've told you this story before, I really thought I had brown hair. And uh, until Ryan Lenners, uh, our former, former intern, uh, proudly announced to me one day that, no, Dave, in fact, you have all gray hair. Thank you very much. I'm like, really? It's gray? I don't see it. And he said, yes, you have gray hair. Uh, another example of that for me would be, uh, up until about two years ago, I really thought that if my son Nicholas and I were to get into a wrestle-off, I could take him. I, I, I really believed that uh, up until about two years ago, until one day, uh, Nicholas and I got into a punching contest, and uh, we've never done that again. Uh, <clears throat> there was a, a wake-up call to reality to me. Or uh, may, maybe, uh, have you ever listened 
to a recording of your own voice or seen yourself on video, right? And you listen to yourself and you think, that's what I sound like? I have to do that every single week as I edit the sermon audio to go to podcast and hear my voice every single week. It's horrible because you think, because, you know, I suppose in my head I think I sound, you know, a little bit maybe like Charlton Heston. And uh, to find out I sound out a little bit more like Alfalfa, you know, <laughs> like, Darla, I love you. You know, I can't live without you. So uh, there's a sort of a wake-up call sometimes when we realize the way we view ourselves is not the way other people view us. And what we're going to find out today is Gideon was just like that. On a more serious note, if you've ever talked to anyone who's been diagnosed with anorexia, you see this. They look into a mirror, that person, and they see something ugly and fat. And when everyone else looks around them, they see nothing but skin and bones. We look at ourselves one way, but the reality is we look a different way. And sometimes we see ourselves one way, but we don't realize that what really matters is how God sees us. Oftentimes God sees us differently than we see ourselves. And what, what happens is oftentimes we say no to God because we believe something about ourselves that is different. Than what God sees. And that's the message we're going to see today from Gideon. Gideon's a man who tried to say no to God. He tried his hardest to say no to God. But eventually Gideon said yes, because Gideon learned to see himself as God sees him, not as he saw himself. And that's the message we're going to see today. Now I need to set the stage for you in the book of Judges. The book of Judges is one of the most singular depressing books in the entire Bible. And, and here's the reason why this is depressing. Uh, the book of Judges happened after Joshua. Now, if you remember, Moses came to the edge of the promised land and was going to take the promised land, but God said, no, that's for somebody else. He raised up Joshua. In this high point, Joshua takes the Israelites into the land and they conquer it. You remember the whole Jericho thing with the walls coming down. They conquer the land. They spread out into the land like God tells them to. But God tells them something very important. He says, get rid of all of the people who worship foreign gods. Get rid of them just so it's only you who worship God in the land. But they didn't do that. And what we see is this became a snare and a trap to the Israelites. Over the coming generations, we, as jo the book of Joshua comes to a close, we come into the book of Judges and we see this downward cycle repeat over and over again. And the cycle is this. For a while, God's people follow him. They worship him. They do it the way God said. But pretty soon, they're enticed by the culture around them to worship these foreign gods, these Baals and Asherah poles. They worship them and they set aside their own God. And so what God does is after a while of that hard-heartedness, he says, fine, I will allow a foreign power to come in and control you. And so we see this cycle. They, they follow God, they follow false gods, God allows a foreign power to come in and oppress them. Eventually they get so miserable, they cry out to God and they say, okay God, we're miserable, will you please free us? They cry out. And so God raises up a judge, not a guy with a red robe or a black robe and a gavel, but a judge is a deliverer, a judge to come forth and to conquer the enemy. And then the people in response say, thank you God, and they worship him for a while. But it's not too long till they fall into that same trap again. 
And this cycle is a downward cycle because every time they worship false gods, it gets worse and worse till we get to the end of the book of Judges and we see that even their deliverer, Samson, is someone who is vile and corrupt. It's a downward cycle. And we're right in the middle of this in Judges chapter 6. The, uh, the Midianites were, God had allowed the Midianites to come in and oppress the people. And I need you to know how terrible the Midianites were. We learn in Judges chapter 6, the Midianites were distantly related to the Israelites. But they were a group of people, a foreign power, a neighboring group of people. And they were so oppressive that when they conquered the Israelites, the Israelites had to hide in caves. Now, here's why they hid in caves. Normally, uh, in, in cities, you would have had time to build fortified cities, big, tall walls to keep enemies out. Remember, there's no airplanes, there, there's no grenades, there's nothing like that you can lob over the wall. So a wall was a very effective deterrent. But the Israelites hadn't had time to build these fortified cities. So they were out hiding in caves. Uh, when you're hiding in a cave, it's very hard to protect your crop. They didn't have an army. So what would happen is the Israelites would plant their crops, and just about harvest time when they were getting ready to harvest their crops so they would have food to eat, the Midianites would come in and steal their crop from them. And what they didn't steal, what they couldn't carry away, the Midianites would burn the rest. You, you need to understand, what they, they were trying systematically to wipe out every single Israelite. They were going, the Midianites were going to starve them. The Midianites were going to do genocide on the Israelites. Can you imagine trying to tuck your child in in a cave at night while the child cried out for hunger because there was no food? This was horrible. They were oppressive. And the Midianites starved them out. And the people cried out to God and they said, God, why is this happening? And interestingly enough, in this case, God gives them the answer through a prophet. Look at verse 7 of chapter, Judges chapter 6. When Israel cried to the Lord because of Midian, he sent a prophet who said, This is what the Lord God of Israel says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I snatched you from the power of Egypt, from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them from you, before you, and I gave you this land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the God of the Amorites in whose land you live. But you have not listened to me. The prophet has given them the answer. This is why this is going on. But they didn't listen. So we find Gideon in verse 11 in a really bad state. In verse 11 of chapter 6, the angel of the Lord came and sat down under the, the oak in Ophrah. That's where Gideon was from, his hometown. So Gideon's at home. The Ophrah belonged to Joash the Abizrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. So here's, you need to understand uh, agriculture from, you know, like 1200 B.C., okay, uh, agriculture was a little different than ours. When, they would, when the Israelites would, would grow their crop, of course, after the crop grows and is ready from harvest, you have to, sh to, to separate the, the crop, the seeds, the grain, from the chaff it grows on. Today we have big machineries that does that for us. But in this day, the way they did that is they would cut it all down, and they would take it to the threshing floor. 
The threshing floor was your most open high ground where it was the windiest it could be. And what you would do then is you would take your grain and as you threw the chaff and the grain together up in the air, the seed would fall out, the grain would fall out, and it would fall to the ground and the strong wind would take the chaff and blow it away. And this was their system. Now, what we find out from Gideon is that Gideon is hungry. We know this because the, the Midianites are oppressing them terribly. And what we find out about Gideon is Gideon says, listen, if I go out to the threshing floor and if I do this, the Midianites are going to see me out in the open. They're going to come and they're going to steal all my grain or burn it. He's like, I don't want that to happen. So he hides. He does this in a wine vat, a wine press. A wine press was a small enclosed space down low where it was cool. Uh, and the idea was simply that the grapes went in the wine press and, and a few people could stomp, literally stomp the grapes until the juice flowed out of them. It was a hidden, secluded place. Not designed at all for separating wheat from chaff. All right? I mean, you sort of imagine Gideon in this small enclosed space trying to throw the grain up and then blow, blow the chaff away, right? I mean, this is ridiculous. How impossible it would be to do this. But what we learn about Gideon from this verse, we learn that Gideon is hiding. He's hiding, hoping to keep the grain that he's grown. Gideon is completely hiding. And the angel of the Lord comes to Gideon. You have to see the irony here. You have to see this. He said, the angel of the Lord, verse 12, appeared to Gideon who's hiding. He says, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. <laughs> or a, a, another translation might say, man of valor. I, I, the irony here, that Gideon is hiding out and the angel of the Lord says something completely different because you see, we learn that God sees us differently than we see ourselves. Gideon sees himself as a nobody who can do nothing. There's no man of valor in him. There's no mighty warrior. He's hiding. This term man of valor is often used for a man of standing in a community. Um, it's interesting, though, God has a sense of humor because another use of this is when King Saul, the very first king of Israel years later, when they find King Saul, they call him a man of valor, same thing. But what's King Saul doing? At the moment they find him, he's hiding out in the luggage compartment. Like, the, God has this sense of humor and irony, but the truth is God sees something different in us than we see in ourselves. Gideon, the mighty warrior, is hiding. And this is our first clue. Oftentimes, God sees us differently than we see ourselves. And it's in God's call to Gideon that we learn how to say yes to God. Because Gideon is a guy who initially, he says no to God. But as God reveals his view of Gideon, Gideon says yes. What I want you to understand today as we look at this account of the life of Gideon, I want you to understand that we say yes to God when we say yes to his view of us. And there are three things in this text today that jump out about how Gideon views himself and how we view ourselves and how God views us. And the first thing is this. Let's compare our view to God's view. The first thing is where we see failure, God gives purpose. Where we see failure, God gives purpose. It's pretty clear that Gideon sees himself and the Israelites as a failure. You say, well, how, how do you see that in the text? Well, look at this. Gideon knows his history. 
Gideon understands it. And Israel is supposed to be God's victorious people, a beacon of hope to the world, but they are completely oppressed. He is hopeless. Gideon sees no way out of the situation. He's even, he's even failed to provide basic necessities for his family. He's miserable. I mean, it's really hard to thresh grain in a wine press. And Gideon understands the prophet, the words of the prophet, he heard it. The words of the prophet went through the whole land, and he heard exactly why the Israelites were in the position. This was no secret. Everyone knew it. Gideon knew it too. And the prophet had told them exactly why. But what it's interesting with Gideon is the misery of his failure and the failure of the Israelites that is ever before them. The misery turns to blame. So when the angel appears to him and says, Mighty warrior, the Lord is with you, what is Gideon's response? Gideon turns in his misery and his failure, and he blames God. Verse 13, But sir, Gideon replied, you just sort of hear him scoffing, don't you? If the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Why are all his, where are all his wonders that our fathers told us about? About when they said, hey, didn't the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and put us in the hands of Midian. Now, if I didn't know better, I'd think that that was you and me talking. Because you and I have said that very same thing to God, haven't we? We have said, God, if you're this God who says you're building your kingdom, and then if you're for us, who can be against us? Why does my life look this way? Gideon turns his failure right back on the Lord. You did it for our ancestors. We've heard the stories. Where were you for us? We're miserable. Why haven't you done anything? And Gideon's conclusion is the same conclusion that you and I have probably reached a thousand times, is that God must have abandoned us. God must be done with me. God must have just said, you know what? I'm out of here. I tried. You're miserable. I'm moving on. Haven't you and I been there? Things don't go like we want, and we turn it back on God, and you say, you know, I feel like a failure. It, it, you and I know this. We know what it feels like to fail. And we sit there and we fail and we go, you know what? At some point, I, I'm tired of failing. And so what it's easier to do than blaming failure on myself, it's easier to blame it on someone else. You ever done this at work? You ever done this uh, in your marriage? Have you ever done this just with God? He said, it's, it's too hard to admit my own failure. And so I'll turn this on someone else. I'll turn it on God. Talk to a parent whose children have walked away from the Lord. And you hear this. You hear a parent cry out whose children in their 20s or 30s have walked away from the Lord. I was just talking to someone two or three weeks ago who uh, they have dedicated their life to serving the Lord. And all three of their adult children want nothing to do with God. And you sort of hear the pain in their voice because as parents, we all judge our success as parenting on how our kids turn out. And we don't ever put any of the, <laughs> the responsibility on their shoulders. And we say, God, listen, I, did, I took them to church. I did the whole James Dobson video series. Right? I did everything I was supposed to do. 
But my kids didn't turn out the way I wanted them to. Failure is a dangerous place to be. But misery makes us think about ourselves and God. We feel like a failure. Instead of owning it, we blame God. But what I love is God sees things very differently. Now, if I'm God at this point, and I hear Gideon talking like this, I'm ready to, like, bring down some fire, you know? Like, how dare you talk to me like this? But look at the response. The Lord turned to him and said, verse 14, the Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? I love the words of grace that God speaks into Gideon's life because God sees things differently. God doesn't see Gideon as a failure. God sees Gideon as someone who is sent with purpose. Gideon's, um, in Gideon's emotional trauma, God says, you're not a failure. You are sent and you have purpose. I mean, how does God see you? See, sometimes we look at our life and go, nothing turned out the way I wanted it to. It's not going the way I wanted it to. I am a total failure. But God sees us with purpose. It might not be what we think it is. It might not be this stress-free, easy life. It might not be a perfect marriage. It, it might not be just, it might, it might not be a failure that we see. God sees purpose in something different. And God gave you a purpose. God keeps bringing my mind back to Matthew chapter 28 over and over and over. We're right before Jesus, who had just died for the sins of humanity and rose victorious from the grave. He'd just done that, and he's ready to ascend back into heaven, and he says, here's your marching orders. He says, go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them, teaching them everything I've commanded you, and I am with you always. You see, no matter where we are, no matter how we view ourselves as a failure, God calls us to make disciples. You're not a failure. You haven't failed God. You are in the perfect spot right now to be sent for the kingdom of God. Now, do you believe that? I, I don't think Gideon believed it. Whoa, wait a minute. I'm hiding in a wine press. I'm a miserable failure. God says, no, I see you with purpose. The temptation is to tuck tail and wallow in failure. But don't do it. God's not staring at your failure or your weakness. God is staring at the call. He has called you in spite of all your weakness, in spite of what you see as your failure, to the mission of making disciples. No matter the status of your job or your marriage or your health, or your sin, or your failures. He's called you. Matthew 28 is not just for pastors, and not just for missionaries. Matthew 28 is for every single person who says, I am a follower of Jesus. He has called you, even when you feel like a failure. Do you know how the Apostle Paul felt about this? I mean, he's the Apostle Paul. 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says, by the way, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away. He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfect in your weakness. Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. 
That's why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties, and I would add, in failures. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You see, God sees us differently than we see ourselves. We might see ourselves as a failure, but He sees us with purpose, and He gives us purpose. And that leads us to the second way from Gideon that we see that Gideon learns to say yes to God. When we see insignificance, God gives significance. When we see insignificance, God gives significance. Gideon now realizes that he has been called to something great. The angel of the Lord is very clear to him. He's been called to something great. He's been called to deliver the Israelites out of the Midianites' hand. And his first response is, I can't. His first response is, uh, listen, uh, I'm having a panic moment. Wait a minute, uh, God. Oh, 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 okay, so my, you're not letting me off the hook just because I'm a failure. No, you don't understand, God. I am not significant enough to do this. I'm completely insignificant. Look at verse 15. Look what Gideon says. God's just sent him. He said, I don't care about your failure. I'm sending you. And Gideon says, but, 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 but Lord, Gideon says, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh. I'm the least in my family. So Gideon, remember the Israelites were split out into 12 tribes. They, each tribe took a section of the land that they had conquered. Manasseh was a big group, but Gideon doesn't focus on Manasseh. Gideon focuses on his clan, a subdivision of the tribe. And he said, listen, of all these tribes, clans that fill our tribal land of Manasseh, uh, like we're the, I mean, we're kind of weak. We're kind of small. And then he focuses on his family within his clan. Now, Gideon's dad was kind of a man of standing. We learn because we learn later that Gideon's dad is the one who had set up these worship grounds for the Baals and the Asherahs on his land. And everyone from the surrounding community who served Gideon's family came and worshipped these false gods there. They looked to, Joe, to Gideon's dad as a leader, even spiritually. Gideon was a man of standing, but what he chooses to focus on is his small family. He's like, well, there's a lot more powerful families in the world than mine. Gideon is not the child. And, and what, what we learn also, that as of all his dad's kids, Gideon's kind of the least one you would expect to do anything. And Gideon is not the child you would choose in this family to do anything. So Gideon says, no, I am not significant enough to be the one who delivers these people. Well, once again, I just hear myself in Gideon. I don't know if you hear yourself in him. I tend to, oh, I'm not significant enough to do anything great. I'm not significant enough. I'm just me. How many of us walk through life feeling insignificant? We think, I'm not smart enough. I'm not outgoing enough, right? Like, I had terrible parents. I didn't go to Bible school. I'm just not that person. For whatever reason, some of us think, oh, God gave the skills to other people. You know? Like, I, I'm honest, when I look around our church, we're kind of a church of a bunch of introverts. Like, most of us are introverts. You, you look around, oh, yeah. You know, not all of us can be Peter Jaquist, right? Like, he's not even here to defend himself. But anyway, but, you know, we can't all be like that. We're like, you know, God will use the extroverts of the world to do something great. I'm just an introvert. And we think that stuff. I've been guilty before of saying stuff like this. You know, Jesus uh, shared the story of the ten talents, how the master gave ten talents to one guy, and he gave five talents to another, and he gave one or two to the last guy. And, 
and then he said, the manager said, go and do something wise with this, and he tells the story. And, and sometimes I'm like, you know, there are 10 talent people in this world, and I am not one of them. Or there are five talent people. I, I think I'm like the one or two talent guy, right? Like, this is what God's given me. This is all I can do. You know what? Rather than losing it, I'll go buried in the ground. I'm not significant. How many of us have said things like that? How many of us believe that? What does God say to Gideon? It's one of my favorite verses. Verse 16. God doesn't pat him on the back and say, you know, Gideon, you feel insignificant. But you know what? I really like you and you're really significant. You just don't see it. That is not what God says. What does God respond with? Verse 16. The Lord answered and said, I will be with you and you will strike down all the Midianites together. I will be with you. The answer to insignificance is not looking to yourself and just feeling better about yourself. The answer to insignificance is not finding all your friends and saying, I'm really discouraged. Could you tell me something good about me? The answer to insignificance is not going getting a how-to book about how to see the significance in your life. The answer to insignificance is God and his presence. That is the answer to insignificance. Sometimes overconfident people sometimes have the opposite problem. Sometimes overconfident people think, well, I could do anything, I don't need God. And underconfident people say, oh, I'm insignificant, I can't do anything for God anyway. And regardless, God is glorified when insignificant people grasp the significance of God and his power. And what is so powerful for Gideon is that Gideon says, you know what, it's not about... I'm good enough, smart enough, and gosh darn it, people like me. It's about God and his presence. Gideon's victory is about God's victory. Uh, I'm going to give away a little of the story that we're not going to get to now. Uh, Later on, Gideon, of course, makes this call and he responds. And Gideon raises 22,000 Israelites to form an army to go beat the Midianites. This is a force to be reckoned with in that day. And you know what God says to Gideon, if you remember the story? God says, that's too many. Too many people. Army's too big. Uh, Tell anyone who's afraid to go home. 12,000 people depart and go home. 10,000 are off. Still a good force. God says, no, still too big. Still too many. Because if you take 10,000 people and defeat the Midianites, you'll think you did it yourself. You'll think you were somebody. You'll think you were significant. So God says, uh, that he does this little drinking thing with him, you know, a drinking game. He goes down to the creek and he says, okay, everyone who uh, drinks water one way uh, is in and everyone who drinks it the normal way is out. I mean, it doesn't matter. There's no significance to how they lapped like a dog or whether they cupped it in their hands. It doesn't matter. The significance here is only 300 people did it one way and God says 300 is a good number. 300 people God used to defeat the Midianites because they simply surrounded the camp. They broke jars and blew trumpets. These guys didn't do anything, right? They broke jars and blew trumpets, and the Midianites killed each other. And the whole point of this is it's not about Gideon's significance. It's about God's power. And it's God that gives us significance. And this, of course, is a foreshadowing, you guys, of the gospel. This is a foreshadowing. 
Because when we were helpless and powerless like Gideon and the Israelites, when we were helpless and stuck in our sin, when we had nothing to offer God, he came to us. And when we couldn't do it for ourselves, the God, almighty God of the universe, humbled himself in the form of a man. He became Jesus and he said, I'll do it for you. And what you couldn't do, I will do. I'll die on the cross. I'll take the sins of humanity on my shoulders. I will do that for you. Ephesians 2, chapter 4 and 6 says it this way. Paul reminds us that our significance comes not from us, but from God. Listen to the words of Paul. He says, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead. Okay, talk about insignificant. I I think dead qualifies for insignificant. I mean, you can't do nothing. If you're dead, you were dead in your sins, but it's by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ, seated us with him. Do you notice who's doing the doing here? This is God, not you. He raised us up with Christ. He seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. For we are awesome because in and of ourselves we're great. No, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for you to do. You are not insignificant. You are in Christ, and that makes you significant. And when you get that, that this is not from yourselves, but from him, when you get that, Jesus then makes you significant. And you see yourself through God's eyes. The moment you stop looking at yourself through your eyes, and you look at yourself through the lens of Christ Jesus who died for you, when the moment you start doing that, you stop seeing yourself as insignificant and you see yourself the way God does, infused with the righteousness of Christ. But what we do is we believe the lives of Satan. We believe that we can't do anything significant because we are insignificant. You and I on our own probably are rather insignificant, but that's the perfect person to be used by God. You and I don't have anything to offer God. He uses the insignificant And by his own presence, he makes us significant. When we see insignificance, God gives significance in Christ Jesus. And the third thing we see is we embrace this view of God and say, yes to him. When we see doubt, God gives grace. For some of us, doubt is a way of life. (laughs) It just is. I understand this. And Gideon does too. Gideon seems to be working in doubt as a way of life. He has a message from the angel, but he's doubting that that message is from God. So look at verse 17. Look at verse 17. Gideon replied, if now I have found favor in your eyes, (laughs) give me a sign. (laughs) It's almost like, hey, okay, God. I, I, I mean, you talked to me directly and you've told me this, but that's not enough. Give me a sign that it's really you talking to me. Please don't go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. And the Lord said, I will wait until you return. The Lord said that. I will wait. Gideon doubts himself. He doubts his ability to hear God. Gideon stops and says, God, I, I don't even know. Like, I know you talk to me directly, but I don't even know really if that's what I, if I heard it right. I, 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 you ever had a moment where you wonder, did I hear God right? Am I hearing that? Remember the... I mean, I remember moments like this in my life. Like, oh, that was the voice of the Lord. And later on, I go, this is really hard. God, was that really you? Gideon's 
doubts himself. He doubts God. But I love how God gives him grace even in his doubt. So the story continues. Gideon brings the sacrifice out and, and the, <laughs> the Lord makes fire jump out of the rock and consume the sacrifice. And Gideon, rightfully so, is completely freaked out by this whole experience. Which, which one of us would not be freaked out by that, right? And he says, okay. And he worships God. And when Gideon doubts, God gives grace. Look at it again, verse 18. The Lord, the grace that the Lord gave Gideon was, I will wait until you return. God could have said, you know what? Listen, no more signs. I'm done with your doubt. Either believe me or don't. Get on or get off. But he doesn't. He gives grace. And Gideon doesn't stop this stuff. Later on, Gideon, after raising all these, he raises 22,000 troops, and then he does it again. He goes, yeah, God, I mean, I know the whole fire out of the rock thing. That was awesome, and you talked to me directly. And, but is this really you? I'm going to set a fleece out, and, and if, if in the morning, if the fleece is dry and the ground's wet, I'll believe it. And, then, and so it happens that way, and well, I don't know. And so Gideon says, reverse it, scratch it, do it the other way. You know, if the fleece is wet and the ground's dry or whatever. I mean, Gideon's putting this fleece out as a symbol of his doubt. It's a symbol of his doubt. And in the midst of the symbol of his doubt, God meets him and gives him grace. Mark chapter 9 is one of my favorite passages because Jesus does the same thing. A man comes to Jesus with his kid. He is desperate to have his kid healed. No one can do it, but he sees Jesus and he says to Jesus, if you can heal my child, would you? And, and Jesus goes, if? If? If I can heal your child? Everything is possible for him who believes. Well, so now this dad is like, oh man, I'm filled with doubt. I want to believe. I love his response. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. That's Gideon, and that's you, and that's me. When we see doubt, God gives grace. And I love how God is patient with Gideon. He's patient with you and I too. Gideon muddles through this whole thing. He's filled with doubt. He tears down the altar that God tells him to do. He says, God says, the first thing I want you to do before you go raise any troops, I want you to go to your dad's altar that he's built to these false gods, and I want you to tear him down and build an altar to the one true God. So what does Gideon do? Gideon says, okay, fine, God, you showed me all these signs. I'm ready. I'm in. Gideon is afraid, the Bible says, and Gideon does it at night. Even in the midst of all these signs, Gideon still doubts and God still gives grace. He summons 22,000 and does the fleece thing. He's still afraid. So God, he's still afraid. He's got these 300 after he's gone through the whole fleece thing. God has winnowed the troops down from 22,000 to 10,000 to 300. They're surrounding the camp. Gideon's still afraid. And so God, in his grace, gives Gideon another sign. I love this sign. This is the most hilarious story. Gideon's sitting on the, in the bushes outside the camp of the Midianites, and he ever overhears two Midianites talking. And one of the Midianites says, hey, I had a weird dream last night. He said, uh, I dreamed a big roll, like bread roll, giant barley roll or whatever, you know, big piece of bakery, came rolling through our camp and ran over a tent. The other soldier goes, rather than go, that was a weird dream. He goes, this can be none other 
than Gideon and the Israelites getting ready to destroy our camp. I don't know what kind of dream interpretation school that that soldier went to, but uh, I don't see it. But God used that in that moment to confirm to Gideon, I'm in it. I'm here. God just keeps giving grace to Gideon, filled with doubt. And of course, Gideon points us to Jesus. Gideon was imperfect. Jesus was perfect. Where Gideon wavered, Jesus was steadfast. Where Gideon saw himself through his own eyes, Jesus saw himself through the eyes of the Father. Jesus understood his purpose, and Jesus died to save the entire human race. The beauty of the gospel is that God doesn't measure your faith. God doesn't say, well, it takes 100% faith for me to accept you into my kingdom. So God doesn't go, uh, you know, if you get to 80, we're okay. Or 60% faith, that's, that's all right. God doesn't measure your faith. What God does is he gives grace. He gives grace. The beauty of the gospel is that faith is in the cross is simple. It's like a child. Jesus, I believe what you did with me, and now I choose to see myself through your eyes. I want to ask you today, how do you see yourself? How do you see yourself? Do you see yourself like Gideon? Do you see yourself like, like just a, a, a complete failure in life? If so, God has called you in spite of your failure. Do you see yourself as insignificant? If so, God wants you to see yourself as significant in Christ because of what he did. He imprints his significance on our insignificance. Do you see yourself as someone who's filled with doubt and the good news is God calls those who are far from perfect and gives grace because Jesus was perfect for us. Do you understand this beauty of the gospel? The beauty of the gospel is that all of our failures and all our insignificance and all of our doubt, God sees us through Jesus and he imprints that upon us. And what I love is I look around and I see more and more of us all saying, I embrace the call, the call to make disciples, not because of who I am or what I can do because of Christ. I embrace that everywhere I go, where, where, wherever I am, God has put me there for a reason. And I won't doubt. Rather, I'll step in and say, God, wh- what am I supposed to do here? Your view of you is in your way. Today, I pray that you would see God's view of you. Someone who's called, someone who's valuable, someone who's overflowing in the grace of Christ. Now, I told you the book of Judges is a downward spiral. It doesn't go well. The book of Judges screams for the need of Jesus. So I would love to tell you today that after Gideon had this mighty victory over the Midianites, where the Midianites turned on each other, killed each other off, and the few that remained ran away, and I would love you to tell you from that moment on, Gideon was a banner for faith in God. And the Israelites at that moment turned and said, this is our God. But Gideon's story doesn't end well. In chapter 8, we see what Gideon did. As a reward, the people offered anything to him, and he said, well, give me some gold. So they throw their gold at Gideon, and he takes it. In chapter 8, verse 27, Gideon made the gold into an ephod, which is like a priestly garment. He probably melted it down, coated uh, fabric with it, and made like a gold vest. 
out of it. He made an ephod, which he placed in Ophrah, his town. So Gideon probably took this gold ephod, which only belonged on a priest, by the way, in the tabernacle. Gideon took it, and he probably put it on some kind of statue in his town. All Israel prostituted themselves by worshiping it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. I think what Gideon was doing is saying, listen, I've got to take care of my hometown now that i got fame and power. If uh, they give me gold and I make it into this, people will come and they'll pay, pay money to look at my statue with the ephod on it and, and get advice from the oracle. And, and his town probably became wealthy, and Gideon probably did, and it became a snare. Because what Gideon did is he stopped. He stopped seeing himself through God's eyes. And he started to say, I need to be back in control now, and I need to take care of everyone. And it was a snare. we got to keep our eyes on Jesus. We have to continually look at the cross of Jesus and see ourselves through Christ. We can't go back. We can't turn. We have to press steadfast on. Will you see yourself through the eyes of Christ? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thanks that you gave us a challenge to say yes to your view of us. We thank you for that. And we confess, God, that we're a miserable failure and we are insignificant and we are filled with doubt. Yet, God, the righteousness of Christ applies to us. And would you help us to never look back, but to put on the lens of Christ-likeness. And would you help us to see uh, ourselves through your lens? Not failures, not insignificant, not filled with doubt, but called, but significant in Christ, filled with grace. Would you do this for us and empower us this week to be on this call, to be significant for your kingdom wherever we go. In Jesus' name, amen.